1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
2: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
3: podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Natlin Archibong has served on Atlanta City Council since 2002. Now she's running for City Council President. We'll continue our one-on-one conversations with all the candidates. Also, what's taking place at a three-day symposium on the campus of Emory University. It's called In the Wake of Slavery and Dispossession Emory, Racism and the Journey Towards Restorative Justice. Those conversations and more, including why monoclonal antibody treatments are key. In fighting the coronavirus. But first this, there are nearly 70 million eligible Americans who are not vaccinated, speaking of the virus. But as for those who are, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says it's important to expand the list of those
3: who are eligible for a booster shot people in homeless shelters, people in group homes, people in prisons, but also importantly are people who work for bu- work with vulnerable communities. So our health care workers, our teachers, our grocery workers, our public transportation employees.
2: That CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky yesterday on Face the Nation. In other news, Atlanta is set to play host to a delegation from Washington DC today to promote President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. US Ho- US Housing Secretary Marsha Fudge will join Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms to tour Herndon Square. That's a development on Atlanta's west side that includes affordable housing. Now, they'll be accompanied by Georgia Democratic Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, as well as Congresswoman Nakima Williams. Then the group will meet with Habitat for Humanity CEO Jonathan Reckford for a live stream conversation on housing equity. Now, as we mentioned earlier, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky talked about expanding the list of those eligible for a coronavirus booster shot. So, in related news earlier this month, the federal government changed the way COVID-19 monoclonal antibody treatments will be distributed in the United States. That includes here in Georgia. You may say, why? Well, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there are shortages and extraordinary demand for the treatments. We wanted to know what that was all about. And also, healthcare providers will no longer be able to order the treatments directly. So just why are the COVID-19 monoclonal antibody treatments key to fighting the virus? Well, from Morehouse School of Medicine, he's a pediatrician and assistant professor. Dr. Ebba K. Ebba joins me. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose, for having me. Let's start start with... I'm a big fan of your show. Oh, really? I appreciate that. I'm going to send you a shirt and a mug, maybe some socks. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Let's begin yes, here for our. our do. <laughs> you got it. Let's go back and begin for our listeners who may not even understand what when we talk about COVID nineteen monoclonal antibody treatments. What are we talking about here?
4: Yes, uh, monoclonal antibodies are um, a commercially produced or a laboratory produced um, antibodies that are specific to a single gene um, to COVID SARS COVID nineteen. Um, and this specific antigen is from the spike protein S1 or S2. And uh, through technology, we are able to produce uh, millions and millions of copies of this same antibody. And we're using those antibodies against those uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine uh, virus. And we're using that as a one of the treatment options.
2: Now, has this treatment always been available, Doctor?
4: Yes, um, the monoclonal uh, antibody technology has been used for years, specifically for uh, your body's fight against any offenders, including cancer cells, um, rheumatological diseases, because these are the antigens that the body makes antibodies against its own tissues uh, falsely. So these um, drugs have been available, or these antibodies have been available for years. So when we so it is, it is
2: accurate to say these are antibody treatments in fighting the virus. Is that true?
4: Right. So, as I said, the technology has been around to fight other diseases um, including autoimmune diseases as well as to fight cancers, but specifically um, as it relates to SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 vaccine, the initial um, approval by the FDA started in November 2020 um, under the emergency use authorization, Um, then subsequently updates have been made. So then it's no surprise to you that,
2: that we now have this supply shortage and there's a demand for the treatments throughout the nation, so much now there's a backlog.
4: Yes. Um, part of the reason is there's been a spike in the use of um, uh, these uh, monoclonal antibodies in individuals who have not been vaccinated. According to a recent study, over 70% of the use of monoclonal antibodies are in the states, the six states in the southern states, including Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, um, Texas, and Louisiana. And these are the states that have a higher, uh, a lower rate of vaccination.
2: So these are, to your knowledge, are we saying that the, these treatments are mostly being used in folks who are unvaccinated and, and obviously they have the, the, the virus?
4: Well, there are two indications for monoclonal antibodies. Mm-hmm. One, the initial usage was for people who have been infected or exposed or tested positive but these individuals are a high risk for progression to severe diseases. Mm-hmm. And the initial approval was for kids over 12. And if, at least they have to weigh at least you know 40 kilograms. And these individuals are being treated uh, before they get to the hospital or before they get sick. In fact, the initial indication is before the first 10 days after the beginning of symptoms, these medications to be effective, they have to be given early. Subsequently, there was a second indication this past um, 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 May or June um, that allowed the second indication, which is a post-infection um, exposure, not disease, but exposure, what we call a post-prophylaxis exposure uh, for these and vac- uh, monoclonal antibodies to be given. Uh, these are individuals who are unvaccinated, partially vaccinated, or those who are deemed to have less ability to make the antibody if they um, get exposed to the disease.
2: Let me ask you this for someone listening you may have a question about, well, is this a replacement for a, a vaccine or not?
4: Absolutely not. It's not a replacement. Vaccine is more effective, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, it's cheaper. On the average, the the, the vaccine the, the federal government has contracted may cost between 20 to $50. These single infusion. Uh, Cost maybe an average of twenty-one hundred dollars, so maybe about you know a um, hundred times more expensive. So the best way for the body's immune system uh, to make production of or protection against the SARS-CoV-2 virus is to allow our body to make its own uh, immunity or protection. Um, but short of that, these monoclonal antibodies uh, help. So, Doctor, I'm
2: curious now, if these are synthetic and, and laboratory-created antibodies, how long do you think it will take for then more to be pr- produced to meet this demand, or will we always see this backlog here?
4: Well, that's why the HHA has taken over the supply chain, because people are using, instead of getting vaccinated, once they test positive or they say I'm exposed and I'm high risk, um, then I have to get these um uh, the monoclonal antibodies to prevent severe progression of disease and preventing death and disability. Um, So, again, the best way uh, for us to protect ourselves is to get the vaccination. Um, Unfortunately, not everybody is being vaccinated, as you say, especially in the southern states where the vaccination rate is lower.
2: And Dr. Eba, how many times have you had to say that? I imagine, in telling people the importance of being vaccinated. Let me get your thoughts on this as we begin to wrap up. When you look at the fact that, and right now, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, we're right around maybe 46% of Georgians are fully vaccinated. Uh, That's a long way from where we know we were just months ago. Um, Is getting to 50% possible before the end of the year, you think? Or is there, a, I guess, a milestone that you think would be, what would make you feel better as a scientist in this area, as as a, as a medical professional that lets you know that Georgia might be turning the corner a little bit here?
4: Rose, I have to be honest, when I tell you this, and um, this conversation, I'm telling you one, as a pediatrician, as a primary frontline person who is having to deal with these everyday evolving information from the researchers, from the the, um, the authorities from the CDC, the FDA have to distill that information and present it to my patients who have that relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And when I tell them, not only am I telling them as a primary care physician that are treating their kids, but also I'm telling them as a father of three young um, adolescent children mm-hmm. that I am using these resources to explain to them um, why they should get vaccinated, why they should get treatment, and what should get prevention. So... Um, I'm hopeful through my uh, interaction with the patients that hopefully have developed trust in me that you know we will get to that point of higher vaccination rate. Um, unfortunately, what we're seeing now, especially with the Delta variant, almost everybody that has gone into the hospital and gotten um, um, affected by the uh, COVID-19 uh, um, has been somebody who's not vaccinated. And hopefully when they see that, maybe they'll be a lot more compliant. Mm. From the
2: Morehouse School of Medicine, pediatrician and assistant professor, Dr. Ebba K. Ebba. Very important conversation for our listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for bringing this important information. We we really appreciate it. And don't worry, I got the socks and the mug and the shirt coming
4: for you. Thank you, Rose. I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you, doctor.
2: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Real Scott. November 2nd, that is the day. City of Atlanta Municipal General Elections will be held. Of course, you know, the big race is the mayoral contest. But there are other elections as well. Uh, City Council seats, Atlanta Board of Education seats, and City Council President. As we continue this week with our one-on-one conversation with all the candidates vying to become Atlanta's next City Council President, we welcome now, and by the way, in case you're wondering, this is in no particular order, solely based on the scheduling availability of all the candidates. I'm joined now by current city council member Natlin Archibong, who represents District 5 and has done so since 2002. Welcome to the program. Good to have you back.
3: Rose, thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
2: Let's begin here, because as mentioned, you've been on council for about two decades now. Uh, why run for council president? Why now?
3: Well, thank you, Rose. Uh when Council President Moore announced that she would not be seeking reelection, it became very evident that we would have a vacancy um, or an open seat, I should say, in that office. And I fundamentally believe that the Office of Council President is best held and served by someone who has been on the city council. Take it back the last election cycle, we had three council members who ran. And remember before that, uh, Council President Mitchell and council member had uh-huh. at a runoff. And so it is fundamentally uh, the best course of action for our city to have an experienced council uh, president. And I'm humbled that I am the only one that is running this time. I've talked to all of my colleagues and they've been uh, supportive and I'm grateful for the citizens who've allowed me to serve. And it would be my esteemed honor to give back to the city that has given so much to me by offering myself to utilize all that i have and all that i am to make our city better
2: district five includes those neighborhoods of east atlanta east lake edgewood Um, when you think back to 2002 when you officially came on the council and you think now what are some of those take us through the changes you've seen and some of the challenges you still see there in that community let's start with the changes
3: Okay, well, you know, when I first uh, came on, uh, I guess, uh, I think elected in 2000, uh, first year of service was 2001, um, we had a lot of uh, crime and uncertainty. You may remember the sheriff-elect had been murdered. I Mm -hmm. mean, there was a lot of consternation around the district uh, around safety Uh, East Lake Meadows was in the process of being renovated. Prior to that, it was called Little Vietnam. And so we are no strangers to crime in Council District 5. But one of the first things I did, Rose, was I hired a retired police officer. She not only uh, worked for the Atlanta Police Department, she lived in the community. She epitomized community policing. And I credit that relationship so that we were able to connect community very closely to our public safety leaders that uh, helped us navigate through some very troubling times to a district now where in little Vietnam, we had the PGA, the nation, the world was in that community. Uh, Eastlake has transformed in many, many ways, not only from having one of the uh, best uh, schools uh, in the APS system as a charter school, drew charter to some of the um, very uh, vibrant businesses at the 2nd and Hosea Corridor, which mm-hmm. is in East Blank. And uh, all across the district, we've seen commercial nodes lead to revitalization of the communities. That, to your point, leads to um, the sense that property values are increasing. And so our legacy families feel the stress and the strain of increases in taxes are Uh, Legacy businesses feel the strain of rental increases and cost of operating their businesses increase. And so we've seen a lot of growing pains, but we have tried to be or I've tried to be very intentional with neighborhood leaders and business leaders to get in front of that, uh, to help our seniors who were facing insecurity around their uh, taxes and being able to live in their homes with dignity. I've been a proud supporter of Neighbor in need for many, many years. Now, as you mentioned, parents, so that means shut up. I got it. No, no,
2: that is not. What I was, that is not why I was doing that. But I was agreeing with you and just acknowledging that you're here. But listen, let's go back to what you just said, because, okay. you know, yeah, East Lake has been this great model. Um, but also along with that has come higher you know, property taxes. Um, it costs a lot of money now to move over there to buy a house in East Lake. That wasn't the case twenty years ago. But that goes into my next question in terms of how do you see your role as City Council President? Let's start with affordable housing here because this is this is a the, a prime example. Everyone wants to see changes for those neighborhoods that were once blighted or once or those neighborhoods that once were considered you know economically depressed. But mm-hmm. at the same time, how do you keep legacy residents there? And how also do you make sure that as the influx of new people come in, that f- those folks who've been there can afford to stay there? Because you, you know every day somebody is knocking on somebody's door trying to get them to sell their house for lower than what it should be than market value. And then we get into this whole thing of gentrification. So how do you see the role of city council and you being able to stop
3: that? Well, I would like and this is something that I've been uh, when we uh, when when Mayor Bottoms came up with the chief housing officer, I rushed over and I said, we need to be that clearinghouse for, to your point, let's say a senior citizen has been inundated with postcards, phone calls, knocking on doors. We need to be that clearinghouse where we can say with no intent to try to manipulate and put our thumb on the scale to let people know valuation, let them know about options, let them know about um, homestead exemption options, letting them know about owner occupied rehab so that people don't feel the tension and the stress of the pressures of the opportunistic person trying to acquire their home. I would love for the city to be that clearinghouse, for us to be that source that allows for people to be empowered to understand what they have in home ownership. Uh, relative to having people be able to afford to come in, we, affordable housing is a nationwide crisis. It mm-hmm. is a crisis here as well. One of the things I heard as I researched, uh, what could we do differently and better? And, you know, you've had a lot of people on talking about affordable housing and we can all tick off the list of things that needed to be done or needs to be done. But what I heard was that we didn't have a central a group of people working collectively on behalf of the city mm-hmm. to direct the city council on policy directives. And so I'm honored that the council agreed with me when I uh, offered legislation establishing the Affordable Housing Commission. It is the first time the city now has a a source and we're looking forward to their work product to give us a roadmap for public policy. Well, wasn't that Terry Lee's position initially to be this like housing czar or whatever you want to call it? It was interesting terry reported to the mayor and was real clear about her lines and so she was um open to talking with us but her her direction her focus her vision was for the administration the council is the legislative body Mm -hmm. we need help in the policy space and that is what the affordable housing commission is doing for the city council
2: well let me ask you this then based on all that, if you were to have this this new central body or whatever, this still comes down to you have to have support of the mayor, given that Atlanta's former city government is cited as one that gives more power and authority to the mayor. So how effective could you be as, as city council president in making sure that you all can come together? Because let's be clear, um, and it's not just with Mayor Bottoms' administration. We've seen this through right. every administration. There's always mm-hmm. been a bit of Depending on the issue, sometimes there's tension over who's going to have the authority over what said sector or issue or whatever. How do you all work through that? How do you propose working through that as a city council president?
3: Well, one of the things I think is that, you know, we have a strong mayor system. Well, guess what? We have a strong legislative body as well. We are the policy making body of the city. And so the housing, the Affordable Housing Commission I'm talking about is one to recommend policies. And then we get to then, if the council sets the policy, then it is the role of the executive branch to carry out that policy. So if everybody stays in their lane and holds each other accountable, this is a space for both of us. I do want to have less duplication. Uh, The mayor had a blue ribbon uh, panel looking at what to do with the jail. We have one now that's a combo of Fulton County and council members. Why duplicate efforts? Let's work together better.
2: Well, what's your response to someone that says y'all couldn't work together in in terms of the issue with the what to do with the old prison farm? Now you voted against (laughs) the proposal. What are you laughing at? (laughs) Laughing. But you were you were one of a few that voted uh, against the proposal in terms of it. Right now, were you against? Were you always against this public safety training facility? or just in this particular neighborhood?
3: You know, Rose, and I laugh because uh, the fact that some people voted no and many people voted yes, doesn't mean we don't get along. We're a deliberative body. We're entitled to having a difference of opinion. I think as the debate and deliberation happens and there is a diversity of perspective, it makes the final outcome better. As it relates to the public safety training facility, I objected to the process. Mm -hmm. I uh, informed the police foundation leaders that they needed to talk to the community first. They chose not to do that. And so the outcry from the public was strong and loud. And in the spirit of listening to those members of the public who felt devalued, disenfranchised, and left out, I did not support the process. Do we need a public safety training facility? Yes, ma'am, is that the best location? I wish the vetting process had been more open and transparent, it was not. That was another basis for my uh, reservations about supporting this. Thirdly, the new mayor, he or she can um, exercise a clause in the agreement to terminate the agreement. So that means that the men and women in the public who think this is resolved, hold on, spoiler alert, in January, a new mayor can undo the whole thing. All of those things put together said, this is not the right time to do this.
2: Speaking of public safety, I want to get your thoughts on moving forward. Uh, If you are elected city council president, will you also support a notion to have a new
3: search for a chief of police? When we elect a new mayor, we are giving he or she the authority to uh, select the commissioners and those who will be operating the different divisions of our city, including public safety and the police. Uh, the mayor will make that decision. And if the mayor so chooses to uh, hire and so, and find a new police, the co- the council will do its due diligence in vetting that person. But I think that's entirely up to the mayor to make that decision and the council will follow accordingly.
2: But what do you think? Do you think there should be a new search for a chief?
3: I think that the new mayor... Should be asked that question rose i'm not dodging but and you know you talk about the strong mayor strong council is which is my term strong council the mayor gets to choose but
2: you've the disagreed mayor, you've disagreed with mayors the mayors before on some issues why can't you say whether or not you think there should be a new search for a chief of police
3: i'm not saying okay when i disagree it will be when the new chief comes before the council and i will talk to my colleagues and say, you know, this person is a child molester, let's not vote for them. That's when we get to disagree. But Rose, I'm not splitting hairs, but the decision about whether or not we need a new chief will be up to the mayor. The council cannot hire or fire. We We can affirm a nomination and that is it. As a citizen, do I think we need a new chief? As a citizen, I think we need to have a leader over the police department that the men and women trust and know is fully invested in them. I know that Chief Bryant was retired. He came out of retirement. I don't know if he intends to stay or even wants to stay. Have you had any conversations with him? Uh, About matters in uh, Zone 5? Yes, I'm sorry, District 5. I have had conversations with him about that, but not about his tenure or does he uh, plan on staying. I haven't. Uh,
2: I do also think for our listeners that your reference to a child molester, did think that was a little bit extreme. Do you want to walk that back, Council Member Archibald?
3: I was just saying a, a facetious extreme example of something where if we had a candidate who had a back, we do uh, as a council look at background checks. Mm-hmm. And so I was saying that if the background check has something in there that was extreme, then the council would be in fully within its rights to say we do not agree with that person the council does not get to decide whether or not there's going to be a search for a new chief or not. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to clear that up.
2: Let's also talk about Buckhead. I think it's important to give every candidate this question. Do you support or you I know you understand because everyone says they understand the Buckhead City Movement,
3: but do you support that? No, I do not support the Buckhead City movement. Uh, this would be a de annexation, which is a much different animal than simply annexing uh, an unincorporated area and in, in creating a new city. Uh, I think it will not be good for the citizens of Buckhead or for Atlanta, we need to get in there and figure out all those points of disagreement and disconnect, bridge that divide and continue to work together as a great city. Atlanta is great together. We're not great when we become divided.
2: You talked about in these nearly two decades of being on city council and how you feel that would be uh, a positive for you in terms of if you were elected city council president. What what mistakes or, or what missteps have you learned from in those two, two decades being on council that you can use if you are elected a city council president?
3: You I mean outside of the misstep of mentioning child molester on this radio program? That's one. Uh, I'm being facetious, Rose. I know. Uh, (laughs) um, Some missteps. Um, Well, I know there are some things that um, caused a lot of consternation in the public. Mm -hmm. Um, The bridge uh, over Northside Drive was one that this term had to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very controversial. It was a very difficult vote. Uh, I rested on the side of if I had a bridge halfway suspended across Memorial Drive would I want to leave that hanging like that Mm -hmm. it would cost as much to finish as to take it down and so that was one of the things that uh, was a very troubling vote and it was an example of the kind of thing where we needed to spend a lot more time planning and understanding the basis for engaging in that cost I think there were some assumptions made Ivory Young, may rest in peace, uh, said it was something that the community wanted. Uh, Later, we discovered the community didn't have that high up on their priority list. So decisions like that, uh, that one uh, stands out in my mind. So you regret your vote? No, I don't regret the vote. I regret the uh, challenges that it posed for the public. I regret the outlay of capital that we could have spent in other ways. Um, And so it's from that vantage point that I bring up that vote.
2: Tell me about your leadership style, Councilmember Archer Bonner Tell our listeners, how do you describe your leadership style?
3: Well, I think I'm more of a uh, transformational leader and that kind of leader as I've uh, looked at leadership styles to see which ones I kind of fit into. they uh, I like to do problem solving and I like to be creative and innovative in how we approach problem solving. But at the end of the day, when we consider the council, it is important to be uh, team oriented because we have 15 interdependently elected officials who have to build consensus around a path forward. And so that is a space that I enjoy and occupy. And I celebrate uh, having people have great ideas and innovation. As I like to say, I take credit for great ideas and I blame you if it doesn't work out. And so that has helped a lot in having an open door policy of including um, people who may have different perspectives and views and coming together with a solution that's good for uh, the city. And the last thing I say is I love when we also and all of that include the public so that we know that we aren't distant from the will, distant from the will of the people. To that
2: point, the community, community engagement, community involvement, um, which is the focus of this show. Mm. How do you see the city council, these last few administrations, well, the two you've been a part of? I mean, if you had to grade community engagement and, and transparency, what would you say? And are you, would you admit that there were maybe times that you could have been more engaged with folks in your district?
3: Um, so as a council member, I, you know, had to give yourself good marks, but I do think we do, I do a good job of listening to uh, the constituents in my district. And particularly when it's a highly controversial uh, issue or something that will, a high price, high ticket item, um, listening to them. I also pay attention to votes that come out of the MPU to inform how I vote. So I think I do a really good job with that as a whole. I think the city has missed the mark on some really big issues. It was quite disturbing to me to have the uh, Beltline impose the SSD, the special services district and place a 2% millage increase on all the small businesses and multifamily units in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, listening to the businesses and the property owners around the 22 mile loop. I heard wait, not now. Mm -hmm. And the council in its uh, wisdom moved forward. I did not support that. I didn't think it was timely. So I think we can do a better job of balancing. The Beltline needs to be completed. Uh, We need to do the Beltline rail, but timing is important. Listening to the public is important. And sometimes we uh, forget the we the people Part of the decision-making process,
2: the Beltline, the building of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, mm. the Gulch, mm. the Georgia State, getting the, the the property over there, the old Brave mm-hmm. Stadium, the mm-hmm. Braves right. going to Cobb County, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. been a lot where the community felt like they weren't part of the process, and also now we know that there's potentially another new buyer for the Mall West End. How concerned are you about that development in terms of transparency? I know it's not your district, but uh, uh, is that concerning to you in terms of transparency with the developer and the community
3: and the mayor's office? I think there needs to be a lot a mo- lot more transparency, particularly on that development. I was on the uh, Invest Atlanta board when Ryan Gravel and Don Ray Vaughan came before us and talked about their vision about including legacy businesses and legacy family. and I, Uh, families. And I know the MPU's worked very diligently with them to figure out a uh, community benefits agreement. They were part of the visioning and would not be displaced. That was a really important part of how they were going to develop that property. Now we have a new owner who won't have the benefit of that engagement and that commitment to the community. I find that very, very disturbing. Well, I want to be fair. Because
2: the develop, we reached out to the developer, and if it is the developer that we, I think it's Prusik out of New York, <laughs> in a statement to us, they did say that they looked forward to engaging with the community. But, you know, you, when you go back to something like that or whether the Beltline, I mean, you weren't a big proponent of the Beltline to begin with because, were you?
3: No, I voted, voted no on the Beltline. And I voted no because I thought it was way too big and we'd never done anything of that magnitude before. I wanted us to work incrementally. But what I am proud of is I was part of the group that knew we needed affordable housing. We didn't do enough. We didn't know how to do it deeply enough and to have enough teeth to make it as impactful as it needed to be. But I voted for that amendment to the Beltline so that we would have the affordability component. If we were going to move forward, for goodness sake, have affordability.
2: Are you... What do you think of the Beltline now?
3: It's an amazing amenity. As I always say, when the body speaks, that's the majority of the council, when the body speaks, it is my job, whether I agreed or didn't agree, to do all that I can to move that agenda forward. I think the Beltline uh, uh, is a transformational project. Uh, It is uh, acknowledged all over the world. It has caused a lot of displacement and uncertainty but we cannot take away from it how uh, amazing it has become.
2: Do you think it can be finished by 2030?
3: I think they're working real hard to do it. This SSD that was passed will hopefully uh, make that uh, a reality based upon what they've reported to the council.
2: Atlanta City Councilwoman Natlin Archibong now running to become City Council President. Part of our ongoing series of conversations with all the candidates Councilwoman Archibald, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Rosa, I appreciate you too. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye.
2: And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. This week, a three-day symposium gets underway at Emory University, and like no other in the institution's history. It's titled, In the Wake of Slavery and Dispossession, Emory, Racism and the Journey Towards Restorative Justice. And university officials are describing the supposum as, quote, building on work started by student activists as well as the Emory Native American Initiative, the Task Force on Untold Stories and Disenfranchised Populations, and Emory's work as a member of the university studying slavery consortium. That's a lot. But we're going to find out what really this is all about. Joining me now with more is Carol Henderson, Emory's Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion also Chief Diversity Officer and Special Advisor to the President and the Co-Chair of the Symposium. Provost Henderson, welcome. Thanks for taking time. I
1: really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and please call me Carol. Well, yeah, we're not having a drink, (laughs) so I have to call you Provost (laughs) Henderson. (laughs) All right.
2: Let let me get your thoughts on this, because we are in this space, and I have this conversation with a good friend of mine. We're in this space now where diversity and equity and inclusion and everyone's got a chief diversity officer and everybody's trying to have this if you want to call it a awakening or reconciliation Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you make of this space that we're in now because it's all of this is coming out of to what happened last year with the protests uh, after the murder of george floyd a wonderful
1: question and and I think last year was a transformative moment for many of us. Uh, I did not see the tape, but anyone that would witness a person being murdered. For nine minutes and 22 seconds, if you're human and you have a pulse, that's going to shift you. And I I think the nation thought it had moved beyond a particular moment uh, that racism had miraculously disappeared. Uh, that we because we had a, a African-American president, we had shifted in our ways of thinking. I think that murder, along with Ahmaud Aubrey, Arisha R. Brooks, uh, Breonna Taylor and other atrocious acts uh, visited upon African-American people just was a, a startling, uh, uh, I think, reawakening for the country. And to drive. So for me, being the chief diversity officer, what I see collapsed into the work of diversity, equity, inclusion are conversations on race and racism. And those two, while they are kin, are not the same.
2: True. And when we talk about whether it's an institution like Emory or a Fortune 500 or what have you, wanting to examine its own history, its Mm -hmm. own path, its own footprints. And I've asked this question to different people and I'll get a different answer. Does it begin with acknowledgement or does it begin with just trying to do the work first?
1: You have to acknowledge in order to move. What are you, I mean, you can do the work, but if you haven't acknowledged the wrong, the trauma, the pain, if you haven't acknowledged what the systemic barriers are, where the, where the blockages are, where the inequities are. You can't really do the work well.
2: Well, let's talk about then this symposium. First of all, how did all this come about? Because you all are, in a sense, examining Emory's own past, in a sense. Yes,
1: a very painful past, a very uh, troubling one. Um, when you find out that, uh, and I should say, movie, I've been in my position oh, about two years now, and am not originally from the South per se. I have 10 folks who are from the South, but not from the South. So Mm -hmm. knowing that I work at an institution or walk on the grounds of an institution where people who looked like me helped to build it, their labor, invisible labor, was a very, it was a very uh, awe moment for me. And Mm -hmm. what that responsibility is as a as a participant in the academic setting, understanding that I didn't get here on my own but stand on the shoulders of those who came before me and did this work. And so when you think about us examining that and and what it means to examine that we had board members or boards of trustees who own people, loaned them out we had faculty members who own you know whether that's back in the back in the day but that back in the day has an imprint and then you move, you know, circa 1959, 1960s, where people of African ancestry couldn't even attend the school. It was, you know, when I'm thinking of the South, Mm -hmm. um, all of those um, historical moments are important ones to realize as you look at how we move forward to create a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive campus environment. Has
2: there been has there been any that you can tell us concerns or did you hear from folks maybe whisper to you, well, do we really need to evaluate this and does this open up Emory to some criticisms or, or, you know, what are we trying to accomplish here?
1: So very interesting. So our students led the way um, they are, our, they are the future. They are our vision mm-hmm. and we work with them. And so the twenty twenty. Um, demands from CBOC, our uh, coalition of, uh, of black students and their council, that coalition asked for the institution to acknowledge that history. Mm-hmm. And you. And previously, and I'm going to go back a ways, 2011, there was a conference titled Slavery in the University History and Legacies, Um led by a wonderful scholar, Dr. Leslie Harris and others. And that was hosted at Emory in 2011. So in some ways, this is a decade revisiting of work that has already uh, been ongoing on our campus. And we have many wonderful scholars, Dr. Walter Rucker, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Kimberly Wallace Sanders and others who do this work scholarly. And, And so that conversation is always ongoing Um, whether it is at this larger level, no, not so much. I have not had anyone come to me and say, why are we reopening that wound? I have not had anyone do that as of yet.
2: Sometimes it's hard to gauge people's mindset. You you can't use a metric of, oh, if we change their mind, that means success. But with this this three-day symposium, Provost Henderson, what do you think is a actual outcome that you hope comes out of this?
1: Indeed. So I, I think for me, the conference really started in recognizing invisible labor. Mm-hmm. Those whose enslaved labor helped to build this institution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What I hope will come out of it is an understanding of what that means and what those imprints are how they continue to show themselves and the ways we engage on our campus. But I I also want the hopeful part is that we move towards restorative justice because that's part of the title. Mm -hmm. And restorative justice, in order to restore, you have to acknowledge. In order to heal, you have to acknowledge. And so I'm hoping that these conversations will allow us across statuses from executive leadership to students to um, administrative uh, and faculty uh, community members, that we will have conversations about what it means to live up to what the mission, the institutional mission of Emory is. And that is to teach, create, preserve, and apply knowledge in the service of humanity. What does that mean? And uh, you know, our motto is the wise heart seeks knowledge. What is the wisdom we can glean from these two to three day conversations Uh, We have student panelists. Mm -hmm. We have plenary speakers who look at universities studying slavery across the nation. Uh, And so we're engaged in that dialogue and looking at what the task force has done um, and recommendations. All of those things are online. This symposium is nestled in that space to advance those conversations. I'm also leading with our campus community, a 70 plus endeavor 70 plus people are involved and we're in the middle of strategic planning around diversity equity inclusion for our campus and so i'm hoping this will serve as a backdrop of what happens when we sit down we engage we listen uh and then we act
2: and provost henderson this is a holistic approach it's not just a lot of folks talking you're also including arts and culture as a part of this yes. as well. How important is that?
1: Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you asked that. So I think you know from my background that I've taught over two decades African-American literature mm-hmm. and, uh, and I was also I had a joint appointment in Africana studies at the University of Delaware. You cannot do this work without art. Art to me is soul work. I said this at an opening um, earlier this week. It Art in many ways bridges the gap when language fails.
0: Hmm.
1: In many ways, it's, it, it's, it is a language understood like music. Um, I, I'm amazed that you can get 10 people in a room, turn on music and they're gonna interpret that differently. It's gonna hit them in their spirit differently. Uh, and that's the way this art, when I think of our endeavor this week, uh, and there may be some moments where things are triggered, um, where we will have meditation spaces, we're doing a restorative justice and healing a component uh, with um, Dr. Annalise Singh. Mm-hmm. And and so art will serve not only as a recorder of this event, um, as a narrative to the journey of humanity, but it'll also um, be sold music, if you will, soul art.
2: Soul art. I like that. I have a question from a listener, and it's actually, it was one of my questions, so we all think alike. Um, (laughs) The listener says, ask the provost to explain further about restorative justice and what that looks like. Very good
1: question. Yes. And so, you know, there is this notion that we're going to restore people to something, even though we don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, For me, restoration, uh, we know that slavery's attempt was to take free people and dehumanize them, separate them from their full selves. For me, restoration and restorative justice is to acknowledge the humanity in a people, in individuals, and then work for the common good so that that voice is represented in the infrastructure, the traditions, the culture of the institution going forward uh and so many people think it's money that's not always it um there' are something we reparations it can't pay for it don't it don't hurt but there there <laughs> there it can't pay for everything right uh and um you know we we realize that but but some also will say made, it's a step forward it know. is. And we do have a, a descendant scholarship that we began and um, will be rewarding this uh, upcoming fall or fall 2022. And so I'm excited about that as a step forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you think of, and I've said this uh, in other spaces, when you think of slavery and also there's Native American and indigenous people in this conversation as well, dispossession mm-hmm. land that Emory sits on, when you think of all of that, if you, I don't know what that cost would look like enumerated. Uh, mm-hmm. I've always said, you know, we, we were given 40 acres in a meal. If we were really given 40 acres in a meal, how much of the United States would we really own? I mean, that would be, I don't think people understand how big an acre is and 40 acres mm-hmm. yeah, per person. That's quite a, that's, that's I, I don't know what that number looks like.
2: These three these three days, each day of the symposium, as you mentioned, you're going to focus on history, impact and healing and restorative justice. And for someone like you and I asked you about, you know, using the metric to how do you evaluate the effectiveness of this? But for you personally, uh, Provost Henderson, what does this three day symposium mean to you personally?
1: You know, it that's a that's a wonderful question. I mean, I am a first gen student. I was born and raised in south central los angeles california i was a single mom and so for me sitting in uh, being given the the good fortune and blessing to be in a position that allows me to move the agenda of equity this symposium allows me a moment to reflect meditate and connect and that means connect the work of diversity equity and inclusion to histories that you cannot erase, but we want to be more inclusive with. Uh, And we know that all histories are not told and they're not told from the perspective of the individuals whose histories were written for them. I think this symposium will allow us with scholars who come from many, many backgrounds and communities to be able to give voice to those who have been disenfranchised, marginalized from conversations around equity, diversity, inclusion, and histories uh, where their bodies were owned, but their spirit wasn't. Um, And that for me, the power is I come from that people. I come from that people who, when they said, we own you, they said, yeah, you own the physical part of us, but we are going to do this work of resistance, of uh, resolute, uh, human work, so that our great great granddaughter, who is a me, can sit in this role and be free and walk among the campus to learn and participate in um, dialogue in higher education. So that's for me. It's and and my a gorgeous son, who who I think of often, very grown, but um, thinking of him and the children. I hope he will give me one day. That this symposium sits at the nexus of change, Mm -hmm. and that we have to continue to talk about what we've done, what we haven't done, and where we need to go.
2: And we come from the same people. It's in the wake of slavery and dispossession, Emory, racism, and the journey towards restorative justice, a three-day symposium. We'll have a link on our website. Carol Henderson, Emory's Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer, Special Advisor to the President and Co-Chair of the Symposium. Thank you so much, Provost Henderson. Fascinating conversation, good conversation, compelling conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Rose Scott, for having me. I appreciate it.
2: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can listen to this program again tonight at 7 p.m. And if you missed that, It's in a podcast, and it's free, so subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more, Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
4: NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Glass and Raúl Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. (laughs) WABE.